If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We are going through John, chapter 6, which is, is an amazing passage. Jesus, it's the longest of the, of the discourses in the book of John. You're going to see that seven miracles are mentioned, but many, many speeches of Jesus are given that are not given in any of the other Gospels. This is where you go to find out what Jesus thinks about things. This is where you go. The events of Jesus, of what he did and how he did it, you do need to look at it from many, many, very places. And we did that when we looked at the miracle that started all this in chapter 6. But his speech is in a synagogue, and he is speaking to Jews who came looking for him after he left, and they wanted him to repeat a miracle over and over again. They wanted bread day after day after day, is exactly like the, the people in the wilderness had bread every day. They wanted manna every day. Now, I'm going to say that I'm convinced that the way that the Bible should be preached, not that I can preach well or anything like that, but I believe that the, the way the Bible should be preached is that it should be two things. It should first be expository, which means you do not have your own idea that you pick a verse to say your own idea, with the verse being the background of your own idea. I don't believe that that does anybody any good. And I don't know how many hundred sermons I've sat through where somebody had an idea and they tried to find a verse that was something like the idea that they had to tell me about. I don't think that the Bible should be preached that way. Expository simply means what is actually in that. Try to make it as simple as possible. That's all it is. So it's not, it's not, it's not slick. It's simply unpacking what is there in a very simple way. So I think the Bible should be preached that way. The second thing I think the Bible should be preached is it should be preached verse by verse. I, I believe now, and there's, there's so many people that would, would say, no, I, I'm getting a, a good nourishment and a good understanding of the word by going everywhere all the time. But I would fear that, okay? To go verse by verse, first of all, trusts God because it, first of all, gives you everything God said. Now, it takes a long time to do it. It takes a long time to do that. But it gives you everything God said, and it doesn't allow you to run away from scary things. It doesn't let you say, well, I'd rather not deal with that right now. I'll go somewhere else. Um, it allows you, it means that you will come to controversial verses. Today is a controversial verse. Chapter 6 of John is one of the most controversial among Christians. And I'm not talking about people who call themselves Christians but are not really believers. I'm talking about real, genuine, absolutely godly people who are seeing the way the Bible is constructed in slightly different ways. And we're going to come to that verse today. So let me give you the context first, and then we'll kind of rev it up. I'm going to give you two contexts. We're going to start with the context of what's going to happen right now, and then we're going to give you the context of that controversial verse. By the way, those of you with the Bible in your lap, it's verse 44 is where we're, is where we're going. I'm really only going to limit my comments to two verses. I'm going to kind of go in a very short passage today 
and I'm going to look at verses 44 and 45 and try to unpack them as best as, as I could possibly do. All right. So let's read first. We're going to read from John 6:41 through John 6:47. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except that the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets that they shall be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and learned of the Father cometh to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we beg your, your help in this, in this hour that you would lift your, uh, uh, our God, Jesus Christ, up high and exalted, that we might be dazzled at his beauty, that we might be reverent to God, our maker, and also to, to justice, to his word, let, let, us, uh, let us speak and hear with faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context is that he's preaching at Jerusalem, or at Capernaum, and a group of people who had, who had been in the field as he distributed the bread. He broke a small boy's lunch into pieces and pieces and pieces and pieces, and he kept thanking God, and he kept breaking them, and he thanked God, and he broke it, and it never stopped breaking. Do you remember the cruise of oil? Every time the lady dropped, there was one more drop that came out of the lip of that, of that bottle. It never ended. He simply thanked God and distributed it. He gave it to his disciples. The disciples gave it to the people. He gave his disciples to the, pe to the people. They came a long way to find him because they were sure he was the Messiah. They were positive that this is the guy. And if he's the Messiah, then he can do what Moses did. And if he is taking bread and multiplying it such, such that it's enough for 20,000 people, then he could do it every day. If that is what we're looking for for the Messiah, then we're thrilled. We need him. So these people thought of this as a job interview. They were interviewing this man for a job that they wanted him to do. They wanted him to be the Messiah of God, and they wanted what they thought the Messiah of God would do, and that's to depose Rome. That's what they wanted. And they came to him and interrupted his sermon. He was preaching in the synagogue, and they stopped him and interrupted him. And so what you're going to see here is an interrupted sermon where he's still preaching, and he's talking to these people preaching at the same time. It is, it's remarkable that anybody could, this is, it would take God to do this to where his, he didn't really miss a beat. He's still preaching the same thing he was preaching as he's answering these Jews. He had just identified him in the previous verse himself as the true bread. So they wanted him to replicate the manna over and over again, do the same miracle every day, and we'll know you're the Messiah. And he said, no, no. Moses didn't give you your fathers this bread. My God gave you, my father 
gave your fathers this bread, and I am the bread. I am the true bread. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. Now, that's where we left last week. The mo- one of the most amazing statements. It's one of the I am statements. We're going to see that Jesus makes I am, and then he says something that he is. This is the first one that he makes. These are all in John, by the way. Nowhere else is it found. And you have to remember, too, when you hear I am, you're talking about what Moses said. Who is it that is, are sending us? Who, who is it that's, who am I telling them sent me to say that, that we're going to be delivered from Pharaoh? And, and God from the burning bush said, I am sent you. I am is God. So if you take the word Yahweh, some of you refer to the holy name of God as Yahweh. Some of you refer to it as the King James um, transliteration of Jehovah. It's the same. It's letters with no vowels in it that you kind of have to fill the vowels in. And this is the covenant name of God. And the covenant name of God that God's people know him as is I am. So when Jesus now says, I am the bread of life, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Immediately, this, stop, this starts them thinking, okay? This starts them thinking. But I'm going to wait and back that up a little bit more because I do want to, to focus on verse 44 and 45. Let me read 44 again first. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Now, there is no controversy among any believers about what the last part means, that there will be a resurrection of the, of the just and a re- resurrection of the damned, and those people with their faith in Christ Jesus will be resurrected to life. That is, that is a promise that is multiple places clear as a bell. It, the problem is no man can come to me except that the Father which sent me has drawn him. Now, that's controversial and if you were to have, there's basically two main camps of Baptist believers that will see this in completely different ways. A free will Baptist, a free will Baptist believer would read it this way. No one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. Absolutely. No one comes to Jesus without God's drawing. God draws everyone, but not everyone comes. So therefore, this means that the drawing is not causing the coming. Can everybody grab that? That's really important. That the, that, the, that the drawing, the drawing of God, the drawing of Jesus Christ is not causing the coming. The coming is from the person who is coming. The coming comes, he provides the cause of the coming. The other way to look at this passage, a Reformed Baptist believer would read the same passage this way. No one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. They would see that no one comes to him without God drawing them to him. Everyone who he draws comes. Now, if everyone that he draws comes, but yet I can look at the world and know that not everyone in the world has come to Jesus, then the only implication is that he is making the coming. His calling is making the coming. That means he's only calling He's only calling some and leaving others in the rebellion. Now, every, every person is in rebellion against God. There aren't any neutral. There aren't any innocent. Every person is in rebellion. 
Everyone has decided for themselves that they are rebelling, that they're strong-arming God. And, and the, the Reformed Baptist believer would say that he's allowing some to stay in the rebellion and others, he's drawing them to come to himself. Right? Now, let's, let's first of all go back to the immediate uh, context of why he's saying this. All right. Now, I've kind of explained the, the broad context. These people who watched him divide the bread have chased him across the lake, gone to extreme plans because they want to make him king. He kind of escaped them and, and uh, sent them away, and they came looking for him, wanting him to be the Messiah. He's preaching the gospel to them. They're not interested in the gospel. They want what they want, and they want him to do something for him. So the immediate context of this verse is 44, is where we started reading today. So let's do that again. Here's 41 and 42. The, Jer the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? In their minds, he couldn't come from heaven. They, he knew, they knew where he was from. They knew his parents. It, you have to remember, these are the same people that would have been in the synagogue when he preaches in Luke chapter 4, which we looked at, we've looked at together, that, that he preaches to his own hometown. And right before he goes to his hometown, he says a prophet has honor except in his hometown and among his own house. Those prophets have no honor because everyone looks and says, this is Joseph's son. This is Mary's son. We know their parents. We watched him grow up. We know where he's from. How could he be from heaven? How could he be from God? Now, can you see that they are thinking two things at once? They are saying, you're the Messiah because you did what only the Messiah could do. We're looking for the Messiah. We want the Messiah because we are an opposed people, an oppressed people, and we need deliverance. But the Messiah, the one that was preached for the Messiah for centuries, is this is God's suffering servant who is sent by God from heaven. You can't have it one way and not the other, but yet that's the way all of us are. It's very easy for me to blind myself to one obvious fact and grab to the other. It's a very normal thing for people to do, and that's what they want. They understand his power. They'd love to use that power. But what that power implies, and that was what he was talking about, you've looked to me for the bread that you ate, and you're not looking at the miracle. Because the miracle is signified, it should prompt a question of, who in the world am I? Who is this? If you remember the disciples in the boat when the storm was raging and Jesus was asleep, and finally he stands and he, he says, be quiet. The question to them, now this was before the disciples had realized that he's God. This was before the last time. And he, he goes and he said, quiet. And they go, what kind of man is this that even the sea will obey him and the wind obeys him? It's perplexing. They're trying to get their mind around the fact of I just watched it happen, but men can't do this. What kind of man is this? The signification that John is using this miracle for is that there is no other explanation. This is God that we're talking about. God is speaking to these people and they're murmuring about him. He just said something about himself, and they were criticizing it. To be critical means that you are higher than what you're looking at and say, hmm, I like this part, I think this, I'll give you an A on this, but D minus on this. 
right? Like your English teacher. She couldn't just give me one grade. She had to give me two or three grades on the same paper, all right? It's that idea. A critical person is looking down upon Jesus and saying, hmm, okay, let me see the parts I like about you, and let me, but the parts I don't like about you, then I'll reject those parts. Jesus is God himself speaking the longest speech in the New Testament to these non-believers who will be non-believers at the end of the passage. And he's patient and he's talking and he's telling them, I am the true bread, and they're disputing it. So the first thing that I saw as I was studying is the more prejudiced they are against Jesus, the more resistant they are against Jesus, the more that Jesus will say, it's not you anyway. Because Jesus said, don't murmur. Don't murmur because, and then he gives verse 4, no man comes to the Father, no man comes to me unless the Father that sent me draw him, and then I'll raise him up the last day. So beat your head against the wall. You argue all you want. You criticize me. You put me in whatever box you please. What you should be asking is, would you pray that God would open your eyes so that you could come to me as the way I actually am? Because I've just told you something true, And now that truth is either echoed in what the Holy Spirit is doing in your mind or opposed. When you go and spread the the gospel to anybody in any way that you can, you will either be the smell of life, Paul said in Corinthians, to them, meaning when you share it, they smell life. They smell life around you. It's like emanating around you. The words that you're speaking are coming on their ear, and the Holy Spirit says, true. And that, that there's a response there. Or you will be the smell of death to them as you say those very same words and they say, no, I reject that. That's impossible. I will not have anybody over me. I shared the gospel once to a girl in Germany, probably 25. And she, she said, I know say sorry. I know say sorry. And she just went like this, I know say sorry. And I was like, hmm, I say sorry. That's what I told her. I broke my English and said it back to her. I say sorry. You say no sorry? I say sorry. Because what's happening, as you are resistant against God, God is resistant against you. Paul, uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews said, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. But you oppose him and he will oppose you. And the word that he uses for oppose is a company front. I don't know if you've ever seen the old westerns. And here comes the Indians, and they're 40 miles across the hillside in a big one line to just show you how big of a force that they are. And it just kind of stops your heart. God said, I will oppose you. I will give grace to the humble and oppose the proud. God will show you who he is. So here's the people sneering at him, putting him at strong arm. And Jesus said, judge me as you please. You're speaking to your God. Judge me as you please. It's my father who draws you. No man comes to me if my father doesn't draw them. And then I will lift them up. So I see that. I see that as the, as the piece of velvet that's on the concrete that this is built on. Okay? There's a strong foundation, but there's something very, very sweet here. As you oppose God, God opposes you. The first hardening that you read in Pharaoh's account was Pharaoh hardened his heart. The first one. But you'll see five after that that God hardens his heart. Okay? God hardens his heart. So you think that you have all of your life to come back to the Lord. Oh, I have all my life to come back to the Lord. You have to be careful. As you oppose God, 
God may taking his heel and sending your rowboat out over the waterfall. And that is God's prerogative. God is not mocked by men. I have to say that very strongly. So these men who are showing themselves apostates, showing themselves lost forever, are lost as they oppose Jesus. And the more that you say that, the more Jesus will oppose you. Now, you look at every other account. Every one that comes to him, the, the woman who was bawling and never stopped crying and kissing his feet and wiping them with her hair. Oh, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And that Pharisee was just like, oh, what did he just say? Does he not know what kind of woman is touching him? And, he's, and he basically asks him a question. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven nothing according to you, though I, I only came for the sick. If you're not sick, I didn't come for you. Now, that's, that's hard. That seems hard because it, it seems like God is not fair. But God is not unfair. I, I just wrote this. This is the passage that came to mind. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams or Urim or prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go into her and inquire of her. And the, and the servant said, Behold, there's a woman that hath a familiar spirit at indoor. When a person is resisting God, they don't want God for God. They're not coming to God. They want God's power to do something that they want to do. And if he prays, they'll pray to God. He prayed to God. I prayed. And didn't he, God didn't answer. Is there anybody else I can ask? That was Saul. Saul's practical. He's a practical man. If God's not going to answer me, get me a witch. I need the answer. It's not that I need to go to God because I am need to humble myself that he might help me. As you oppose God, God opposes you. Now, why are they murmuring? He said, he said, uh, he had just said, this is in 36, they, um, you have seen me and believe not. He had just seen, said this, this is in John 36. You have seen me, but you do not believe. Right? So stop grumbling. Instead, humble yourself. Maybe, maybe God will give you repentance. Okay? So, so, Here's my question. Now, this is the scary, and oh my goodness, do you realize how much I've prayed over this? Do you realize in tears how much I've prayed? I prayed for hours yesterday. I wrote down two hard questions. Here's my first question. Are not all drawn? That's my first question. So the first one I say is the more free will Baptist your theology, the more you're going to say yes, all are, all are drawn. But if... If all are drawn, but it's based on whether I can re rebel against your drawing, then you, all are drawn. It doesn't matter. Because you, if, you have to be knowing that you're saying two different things. What does drawing mean if all are drawn, but some come? What does drawing mean when you, they come? Th that's different. There's a different idea here. So I picked three passages that would support this view, okay, as best I could to find. What are three passages that would support the idea that, that God is drawing, but you can resist that draw? So the first one I wrote was John 12. This is, if you could put these three up, I appreciate it. This is John 12, 32. If Jesus is speaking, if I be lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all. Now, in your King James, if you realize men is in, print, uh, is in italics, means there's no word there. I will draw all unto me. This, is, this he said, signifying the death that he should die. Now, if that passage means all men that live, all men that breathe air, then he is drawing all men. Okay? And I'm just going to leave it there. It does depend on what that is actually saying. And it takes digging. The Bible is not a coloring book. It takes digging. It takes comparing Scripture to Scripture with, with, with on your knees in front of God. That's what it does. It requires a disciple digs. All right? This is not, this is not the, the nursery school Sunday school class. God is requiring you to, to, to chug. Okay? I also wrote this, Matthew 6, 10. This is from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Which implies that God gives commandment in heaven and it's instantly done. But God gives commandment on earth and it may or may not be done. Can you look into the commandment of God and say no? I don't think very few people would say, of course that's true. You can look into God's commandment and say, no, I'm not going to do it. That's what rebellion looks like. My question then has to be, is God's drawing the same as his commandment? Is that, a, is it, that commandment that could be rejected is drawing the same? That would be my only question there. And then this is the Pharisees in chapter 7 of Acts. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, I almost didn't put this because I didn't think it was fair because this is the Pharisees. They've rejected Jesus, do you see? So, of course, they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. But the question is, can, can God draw and be rejected? There, there was the question I would give. Now, back to the question, are not all drawn? The more Reformed Baptists you are, this is how you would see it. You would say, no. Now, I'm going to give um, only one passage as a rebuttal because I, I'm not trying to have an arm wrestling match. That's not my purpose here, okay? I picked Matthew 11. So, you know, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm going to start, that's 28. I'm going to start in 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, it seems good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and to whomsoever the Son may reveal him. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. So when I look at this, Jesus' evangelism of come to me is rooted in the fact that the Father hides and reveals. And if, if it's revealed, I want to come to Jesus. I want to come. The Father is saying, come, revealing who Jesus is. As the Father is revealing who Jesus is, I'm interested. And I might be not saved, but I'm heading that way. I'm going there, and my heart will believe. It's that idea that I'm prompted that way. Jesus' evangelism is rooted in this, right? Here's my second really hard question. Oh, my goodness, I was so hard on myself. Does faith cause election? Or does election cause faith? That was my other hard question. And I'm going to pick two verses only, and I'm going to look at both views and see. All right? 
and I'm trying to be as honest as I can. This is Acts 13, 48, and I picked the hardest ones I could find. I went through, do you have the big book at home that has like a whole page of little, I went through the, all of them, and I was like, I want the hard ones. Get me the hardest possible ones, okay? And I said, no, that's not hard enough, and I just kept looking for the hard ones. I picked two. Here's Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Okay? What would a free will Baptist do? An honest person, an honest, godly person. What would they do when they come to a verse like this? Well, I would say this ordination, this appointment, God has appointed them to live. God has ordained them to live would be seen as foreknowledge. I can't think of any other way around it. It would be that God knows those who will, will uh, come to him, and that is the same as God's election. The elect of the world, and no one's scared of it. The word elect is 50 times. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's not an uncommon word. But yet, that idea of the elect of the world are the, one, the ones who have faith in him. The ones who put their faith in him are the elect. Right? That's, that's the way a free will Baptist would think, I believe. What would a Reformed Baptist believe? The act of believing is the result of God's prior choice. And that is, that's where I was trying to go three weeks ago. The work of God is this, that you believe upon him who God sent. That that's God's work, that God is doing that. That God is... God is giving me eyes to see. God is giving me the ears to hear and then telling me if I have ears to hear, hear. That he's, he's breaking my heart. He's crushing my resistance. And then when I come to him, then I cry. And so a, a, a reformed believer would say an act of believing is irresistible. This grace is like, it's just, it, you just want to go to it. It's like baked bread out of the oven. Okay, you just, you, it's, it's just compelling. It compels you. Here's the second one. This is Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So look at that, just that one phrase, the faith of God's elect. Now, I would imagine a free will a Baptist would say God's elect are the ones that responded in faith because they're they're. They're connecting faith with election. Okay, the, the elect are the ones who have faith. Um, a reformed believer would say there is a specified group known as God's elect. That that is a specified group known as God's elect that he always have, has known from the foundation of the world. And he gives grace to them that results in their faith. And that, that is how I see it. Now... This is something that is rest, that I've wrestled with for 40 years and will wrestle with for 60 more because I plan to live to 104 like the lady who I bought the house from, okay? <laughs> She's trying to make it to 104 because her, her aunt made it to 104. She's probably going to make it. She's as sharp as a knife. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I hope you realize that I was not trying to be dogmatic here. And I'm not trying to be a, a, a wimp either. Okay? What I'm doing is I'm trying to preach the word and let the word seep and do. The word is your teacher, right? But I want, to be, I want to give you some comfort. I believe that this election from verse 44 is rooted in 45. Can I read 44 and 45 both to you? Because I've, I need a running start 
to get to the sweetness of 45, okay? I'm going to go back and read these two. This is 45, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Now, Jesus immediately quotes the Old Testament. So what he's doing, he's doing it as a support. If you were writing a paper and you make a statement and then you put a quote out of a book, you're quoting a book to support what you're saying. That's what it is. This is a support. He's appealing to the gospel in the Bible to say what he just said. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, every man that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Do you see how sweet that is? That you, those who have, who have heard and have learned of God come to me. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 54, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Okay, all thy children. And so Jesus is, knows them all. He knows the verses, and he knows exactly how they play. He knows how they fit into eternity. He knows how they fit into the, his theology. And he said, you, the, the Lord shall teach your children, and great shall be the peace of thy children, as the end of that verse. So Jesus claims that as God himself shows Christ to us through the scriptures. You want him. I had um, one of the teachers yesterday. We had a girl saved at the Christian meeting. Praise God. Had a girl saved. And she asked the girl, do you have a, was there a date you were ever saved? And the girl was confused. And so they prayed together. The girl was trusting. Um, I told her, when she told me that she asked her if there was a date, I said, I don't know that I know my date. Like, I know that I trust God. I know I trust God through Jesus. And I trust that God will treat me kindly for Jesus' sake. And when I go to heaven and I appeal to him, I'm not appealing on my works. I'm not appealing on how well I obey. I will say, God, as I look at the ground, I have a Savior. That will all the only thing I say. So when was that in my pocket? When did I pick that rock off the beach? And when did I put it in my pocket? I haven't the slightest idea. Not at all. I've taken that rock out of my pocket so many times and looked at it and put it back in my pocket. When did I truly believe? I don't know. I don't know. I think we try to have dates because it gives you some kind of a confidence. It's a confidence builder that you have a faith with God. I would say, do you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation? Then you have peace with God. And as I, as I am sitting under the gospel, that is when I trust Jesus. I have trusted Jesus 40 billion times. Was I saved 40 billion? I don't think so. I think salvation, God just grabs, grabs you. But how do I trust Jesus? I trust Jesus when I sit under the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit teaches me that that's Jesus I'm looking at, and I see Jesus, then I want him, and I go to him. And my heart leaps and goes, Jesus, I want you. That's trusting Jesus. A Christian is someone trusting Jesus Christ. A Christian is not someone who has a date in their Bible necessarily. Are there people with dates in their Bible that are trusting Jesus Christ? Well, of course. Are there some dates that, yeah, of course. What that means is I don't know. I don't know. 
My, I tried my hardest to get Emma's first words to be to delayed gratification. I was like, delayed gratification, delayed gratification. I wanted delayed gratification to be her first words. And she said, mama. That was her first words. So it, it does not matter necessarily. The, the question is, do you trust him? So as God teaches you through the Bible, you come to Jesus. And Jesus says in this beautiful 45, he says, and everyone that has heard and learned of the Father comes to me. It's the scriptures that will save your soul, Timothy. That's what Paul said. That it will make you fit for salvation. That's what he said. You've learned the scriptures from a child. Why does a tiny congregation like ours go to the trouble of making sure there's someone here to teach Sunday school? Sorry, you won't, there was no Sunday school list today. That was my fault. It's because it is worth our labor. It is worth our effort. It is worth the foolishness. It's worth the, I wish that I could sit down and listen for a few minutes. It is worth the, well, there's glory to look forward to. Okay? Right now there's labor to be done. And there are certain things worth doing. And one of those is sharing the gospel with children. As you teach the gospel and the Holy Spirit is the real teacher and Jesus is the, is the subject, then that person is hearing of God and they will lead that, that person to Jesus and they will come to me, Jesus says. Do you understand that true brothers, there is no problem at all of a reformed brother and a, and a free will brother being brothers. They're absolutely brothers. Do you see it? I need to know that my theology has to be the same as God's, and I'm open to that as God teaches me. And I personally want God's glory to be the highest. I don't want to say that I have glory in my salvation. I don't want to. I think that, that to me, that just makes me gristle. I want God all to have glory. Okay, only him to all glory goes to him. So that's me. But I tell you, you are you have the conviction based upon your digging and based upon your reading and based upon your looking at the real God who is your real God. And this is not dispute. This is this is not, not anything that should separate brethren. Not at all. It shouldn't separate them at all. I think you can, you can both be on the same plow going the same direction with, with God blessing you amply. All glory to God. Do you agree? Amen. Amen.